So The Taming of the Shrew is a comedy from the early part of Shakespeare's career. It probably dates from 1592 to 3, and it's first published in the folio in 1623. Sorting out the order of Shakespeare's earliest plays is really critically still quite a moot point, but if you look at an edition like um, the Oxford edition, Complete Oxford, which puts the plays in chronological order, you'll see that the Taming of the Shrew comes second, uh, second in all of Shakespeare's works after um, uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona and just before the play we now call the second part of Henry VI. So that, that suggests that the most recent scholarship is putting it right at the beginning uh, of, of Shakespeare's work. I talked a bit when I talked about comedy of errors about what earliness uh, tends to allow us to think about uh, Shakespeare's plays, how it allows us to excuse certain things or to, to see things as, as immature. And in the lecture on comedy values, I suggested that that might be uh, slightly unhelpful. Okay, so it's an early comedy. And the, the question I want to try and use to focalise our discussion of the play is probably the most obvious one. Is the shrew tamed? Is Katharina tamed? And so you know what happens next, if you've been at any of the other lectures. So what happens now is I give a short synopsis of the play in order that even if you haven't read it, you can get a sense of what I'm talking about uh, through the rest of the lecture. I think uniquely in this lecture series, and possibly uniquely in Shakespeare, with The Shrew, it isn't really possible to give an account of what happens in the play that precedes the kind of interpretation we might want to perform on it. So there isn't any such thing as a neutral plot summary of the play. In fact, that's the crux of uh, what I'm talking about. That plot summary is already a contested part of critical interpretation. I'm just going to try and outline how that is. So The Taming of the Shrew is about two courtships, the daughters of the Paduan merchant Baptista, uh, Catherine and Bianca. Catherine is the shrew, so a shrew is a sort of scoldish woman. Um, I was teaching um, an American summer school where they had been Googling pictures of shrews and were in a terrible anxiety about how big they were, uh, you know, thinking that they might be like bears or something. Of course, <laughs> shrews are tiny, uh, are, are tiny things and quite why uh, uh, the, the, the association is probably more likely to be with kind of shrewd and those kinds of things uh, rather than that mouse with a long nose. So Catherine is the shrew, a woman who, depending how you look at it, is feisty and independent, lonely and misunderstood, strident and antisocial. Her father, who, depending on how you look at it, is either a worried widower or a patriarchal tyrant, has decreed that Bianca, who has numerous suitors because, depending on how you look at it, she is beautiful, gentle and agreeable, or she is exactly the kind of annoying, insipid, simpering arm candy who would have a lot of suitors in Elizabethan comedy and who you too would want to tie up and beat. Uh, Bianca cannot marry until her older sister is also married. The stage is set for the entrance of Petruchio, who, depending on how you look at it, is a quirky and un unorthodox guy who knows his own mind and wants a woman who knows hers, or a psychopathic bounty hunter with sadistic and misogynistic tendencies. So Catherine and Petruchio are paired off in a relationship which, depending on how you look at it, is crackling with sexual tension along with a touch of domination fantasy, or is cynical, loveless and enforced by a patriarchal society. 
He treats her in a way which, depending on how you look at it, uses distinctly unfunny techniques from torture, including sleep deprivation, brainwashing and starvation, to bend her to his will, or performs a zany, unorthodox courtship which shows their mutual determination not to yield as the underlying equivalence uh, and equality beneath their union. So, at the end of the play, Catherine is, depending on how you look at it, broken-spirited, parroting patriarchal ideology and utterly submissive, offering to put her hand under her husband's foot, or, ironically and unabashedly vocal, preaching the interdependence of husband and wife to earn herself half of of a fat wager placed by her husband. And did I mention that the whole story is set up as a play within a play? The play's induction sets up the Petruchio and Catherine plot as a play performed for the drunken tinker Christopher Sly, who is being made to believe he is a lord and that a page dressed up as a woman is his wife by some uh, Bullingdon club types who are having a bit of fun, meaning the whole story is framed so as to be obviously implausible and fictional. Even the names are contentious. We used to call the female lead in this play Kate, but feminist editors have pointed out that this is not neutral either. When Petruchio meets her for the first time, he greets her, Good morrow, Kate, for that's your name, I hear. The reply is clear. Well, have you heard, but something hard of hearing, they call me Catherine, that do talk of me. The folio text begins by calling her Katerina in stage directions, although it does move to to call her Kate. It's quite an interesting uh, way in which we might want to think of the text itself, the apparatus of the text trying to tame her, changing her name in stage directions and speech prefixes from Catherine or Katerina, which she herself says she prefers, towards Kate, the name Petruchio gives her. George Bernard Shaw, who was not a fan of the play, felt it was all just about bearable until Catherine's final speech, at which he he balked. Shaw wrote a letter to the Pall Mall Gazette in 1888 uh, in the guise of a woman, urging both men and women to boycott the play. This is Shaw. No man with any feeling of decency can sit it out in the company of a woman without being extremely ashamed of the lord of creation moral implied in the wager and the speech put into the woman's own mouth. But perhaps unexpectedly, Germaine Greer, writing in the feminist classic The Female Eunuch, first published in 1971, writes that Kate has the uncommon good fortune to find a husband who is man enough to know what he wants and how to get it. The submission of a woman like Kate is genuine and exciting because she has something to lay down, her virgin pride and individuality. That's certainly the view of the play we get at the end of Zeffirelli's film version of 1967, which by casting offstage on-off lovers, tempestuous lovers, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, as Catherine and Petruchio, consolidates the sense that this is a passionate relationship in which both pots and pans, but also underwear, would fly. The 2005 BBC Shakespeare retold film of the play also helps this kind of interpretation by casting Rufus Sewell as a Petruchio already constructed by Sewell's own acting persona as a highly desirable bad boy. So it's worth thinking about how casting uh, makes a difference here. The play tries to set up Petruchio as a kind of embarrassment to to Catherine, doesn't it, in the description of how he behaves at the wedding. That has a different connotation if the the casting choice makes Petruchio look uh, a suitable or even a desirable uh, husband, as in that BBC version. 
So the question then of whether Catherine is tamed or not is one that the play itself produces. And it's a question that the play itself does not answer. Therefore, it's been the work of criticism and especially of performance to try to produce an answer. Is Kate tamed or not? But I think what I want to stress in this lecture is the importance of the question, the ongoing importance of the question, rather than an answer. This is a deeply ambiguous play on its own terms and in terms of the history and its intersection with things we still feel strongly about. Uh, gender relations is still a highly topical subject. Uh, it's a play which has had uh, a, a very, very active life in 20th and 21st century performance, almost always in some kind of dialogue with modern or topical views about women uh, and their roles. So in some ways, the answer to the question about whether Catherine is tamed is a sharper version of something which I think is true of everything we say about Shakespeare. We tend to make this play mean what we want it to mean. Let me try and put some detail on that. And uh, like George Bernard Shaw and like many other readers and performers of this play, I'm going to put the main locus of the question about Catherine's taming on her final speech. Uh, and I'm going to read that speech out. It's a, it's a really long speech and it's partly its length that's important. The only way we can get a sense of that is to read uh, the whole thing. This is much the longest speech in the whole play. Fie, fie, unknit that threatening, unkind brow. She's talking there to the other women. And dart not scornful glances from those eyes to wound thy lord, thy king, thy governor. It blots thy beauty as frosts do bite the meads, confounds thy fame as whirlwinds shake fair buds, and in no sense is meet or amiable. A woman moved is like a fountain troubled, muddy, ill-seeming, thick, bereft of beauty, and while it is so, none so dry or thirsty will deign to sip or touch one drop of it. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee and for thy maintenance, commits his body to painful labour both by sea and land, to watch the night in storms, the day in cold, while thou liest warm at home, secure and safe and craves no other tribute at thy hand but love, fair looks, and true obedience, too little payment for so great a debt. Such duty as the subject owes the prince, even such a woman oweth to her husband, and when she is froward, peevish, sullen, sour, and not obedient to his honest will, what is she but a foul, contending rebel and graceless traitor to her loving lord? I am ashamed that women are so simple to offer war where they should kneel for peace or seek for rule, supremacy and sway when they are bound to serve, love and obey. Why are our bodies soft and weak and smooth, unapt to toil and trouble in the world, but that our soft conditions and our hearts should well agree with our external parts? Come, come, you froward and unable worms. My mind hath been as big as one of yours, my heart is great, my reason haply more to bandy word for word and frown for frown. But now I see our lances are but straws, our strength as weak, our weakness past compare, that seeming to be most which we indeed least are. Then veil your stomachs, for it is no boot, and place your hands below your husband's foot, in token of which duty, if he please, my hand is ready. May it do him ease. 
Now, the interpretation of this final speech of Catherine's is crucial to the overall interpretation of the play. Are we to read this as an expression of her being cowed, brought low, reduced or broken-spirited? Is she sarcastically rehearsing a pre-prepared patriarchal conduct piece? Is this a plot between her and Petruchio to win the bet? Has she been brought to proper wifely conduct and educated away from the antisocial behaviour of her earlier life? These large-scale interpretations of the whole speech are made up of the details of particular points in performance. What are the rest of the cast doing while this goes on? This is, this is the, the sort of slowest point in the play. Comedies uh, tend to be uh, about back and forth and dialogue, don't they? They tend to move quite quickly. They don't have big set-piece speeches. That's something we associate uh, with genres like tragedy. And that's, that, that gives us a, a, a different pace to these plays. So this is a, this is a play which slows down on, into this long speech right at the end. So what are the rest of the cast doing? Are they attentive? Are they amused? Are they uncomfortable? What about Petruchio? When Catherine states that her hand is ready to be placed under her husband's foot, it's a quite different declaration with quite different meaning if, for example, she kneels down in front of him and puts her, foot, puts her hand down under his foot, or if she's standing up, daring him to ask her to do it. Clearly the questions don't stop here. Petruchio's response is a single line following on from Catherine's 43 why, there's a wench, come on and kiss me, Kate. Is that a kind of adequate response? Uh, <laughs> it, it, is, is that just delighted? Is that the, the only thing you could say? Is it meant to register a kind of uh, uh, inadequacy or incommensurability? As is quite usual in the folio, there's no following stage direction after come and kiss me, Kate. We might think that kiss me, Kate is an internal stage direction which doesn't need the editor to write... Uh, they kiss or he kisses her, two stage directions which are actually slightly different in connotation. But most editors do insert the obliging, mutual and even romantic they kiss, but it's possible, quite possible that they don't uh, or, or uh, you know, there are any number of things could happen at that moment. There are other possibilities, an unreciprocated or an unwelcome kiss or no kiss at all. Elizabeth Schaefer's excellent stage history of the play in the Cambridge University Press Shakespearean production series is the place, I think, to look up some of these possibilities. We'll talk more about them uh, in, in some specific cases a bit later in the lecture. Now, certainly some of these possibilities are more available to particular cultural moments than others. And one of the things we tend to assume uh, about the taming of the shoe is that the problem it presents to modern audiences is a new one, it is, it is in some sense about a gap between what we think the Elizabethans accepted and thought was fine and what we now accept and think is fine, so that this is a play, uh, therefore, we, we construct as unproblematic in its own time, but which gains kind of problems through historical circumstance. I think for lots of reasons that isn't true uh, about The Taming of the Shrew. I think it always was an ambiguous and problematic play. Interestingly and unusually, in the case of The Taming of the Shrew, we can see some, way, some of the ways in which the play impacted on its earliest audiences because of the evidence of a sequel written by John Fletcher in around 1611. Fletcher was a playwright with the King's Men, uh, probably the house playwright after Shakespeare, 
he collaborated with Shakespeare on Two Noble Kinsmen and on All is True or Henry VIII uh, in, in the early 16 uh, teens. His mock sequel to Shakespeare's earlier play can be seen as a further or more distant kind of collaboration. This is another way in which these two writers are working together uh, by uh, Fletcher writing a kind of response to The Taming of the Shrew. The play is called The Woman's Prize or The Tamer Tamed. And what it does is to reintroduce The Taming of the Shrew into the context, the well-established literary context of the war between the sexes. Typically, in serial stories like those by Chaucer, maybe, or Boccaccio, a story in which a husband outwits or triumphs over his wife is balanced out or capped by a story in which the wife uh, sort of challenges or overcomes the husband. So these these shrewd stories, these uh, gender inequality stories, tend to go in pairs that kind of even each other out. And what the, uh, the Fletcher play does to Shakespeare, perhaps, is to provide that answering pair. Structuralists who have wanted to change, uh, sorry, structuralists who have wanted to trace the origins or the circulation of particular story types have identified that the shrewd taming plot exists across many cultures. There's no agreed literary source for Shakespeare's treatment of it here, but as an oral uh, folk tale, uh, it, it has a very wide reach. At the end of Fletcher's play, The Woman's Prize, the epilogue proposes that the result of the two plays should be a truce. Both, te- both sexes should be t- taught, quote, due equality, and as they stand bound, to love mutually. Between them, the end of Fletcher's play suggests, we ought to get to some kind of a mean or some kind of balance uh, between the sexes. Now that Fletcher's play is written as a self-conscious riposte to the taming of the shrew is clear. Shakespeare's Petruchio is now a widower and returns as Fletcher's major protagonist. Fletcher's play begins with the wedding guests discussing Petruchio's second marriage and reminding the audience of his first. Tranio reveals that yet the bare remembrance of his first wife will make him start in sleep and very often cry out for cudgels, colstaves, anything hiding his breeches out of fear her ghost should walk and wear them yet. This time, Petruchio's friends assert he will be in sole charge of breeches wearing. His new wife, Maria, is going to be uh, completely controlled by him. She must, say, say the friends, do nothing of herself, not eat, drink, say, sir, how do ye, make her ready, piss, unless he bid her. So Petruchio plans in his second marriage uh, to enforce himself uh, and, and his husbandly authority over his new wife, Petru- uh, his, his new wife Maria. But Petruchio is in for a shock. His seemingly compli- compliant bride has her own agenda. Uh, she swears, "Till I have made him easy as a child and tame as fear, he shall not win a smile or a pleased look." To this end, she locks Petruchio out of her bedchamber on their wedding night, lays in supplies for a siege and fortifies it against his his invasion. But Fletcher's interpretation of the gender politics of Shakespeare's play seems already ambiguous, and this gives us a kind of licence to develop this ambiguity as something intrinsic to the play from its first uh, performances. In his recollection of The Taming of the Shrew, 
We can see from what I've just described that Fletcher hedges the issue about whether Catherine really is tamed into submission by the end of the play. This, is, this uncertainty becomes uh, thoroughly contemporary. Petruchio's friends remember Catherine as a rebel and a tempest. The threat of her return haunts Petruchio's sleep, suggesting therefore that her independence was not quelled by her husband and that the speech of apparent submission at the end of Shakespeare's play that we've just heard was only provisional. On the other hand, Maria, parleying with her new husband from her barricadoed chamber, salutes him. You have been famous for a woman tamer and bear the feared name of brave wife-breaker. A woman now shall take those honours off and tame you. Nay, never look so big, she shall believe me, and I am she, what think ye? So Petruchio's renown here as a wife-breaker suggests that he is remembered for taming Catherine, even though the comment about his ongoing nightmares suggests his hold over her was not as complete as Maria supposes. Fletcher's interpretation of that final speech, then, implicitly allows for Petruchio both to, ha to have tamed and to have not tamed his first bride. That ambivalence, then, the question mark over what kind of resolution we reach at the end of Shakespeare's play, is, we could argue, present in its reception from the earliest point. Fletcher's play asks the same question we are asking, and, like us, can't settle to a single answer. So this early ambivalence about the play is amplified by evidence from an apparent earlier version of this play. I've already said that The Taming of the Shrew was first printed in the folio of 1623. But there is an earlier play text published under the um, uh, beguilingly similar title The Taming of a Shrew, which is published anonymously in quarto in 1594, so The Taming of A Shrew, published anonymously in 1594. A Shrew is a text which is, which, of which the relation to the Shrew is quite difficult uh, to work out. It, the play has a similar plot, the two plays have a similar plot, both have this central character called Kate, who is a, a Shrew or a Scold. In A Shrew, she is to be married to Ferrando, the Petruchio character there is called Ferrando, to aid the suitors of her sisters. In the earlier version, there are two other sisters as well as Kate. The play proceeds pretty much as the Shakespeare version we are more familiar with, with scenes of taming involving uh, deprivation of food and sleep. But there are two points of comparison between The Shrew and A Shrew that I'd like to bring up uh, as particular focuses for discussion. And the first is to take us back to that final speech uh, that I <coughs> spoke about. In The Taming of Ashru, Kate, I'm going to call her Kate because that is what she's called all the way through. In The Taming of Ashru, Kate's speech about the reason women should be subservient to their husbands is actually distinctly different from those given by Shakespeare's Catherine. Kate tells us in Ashru that women's inferiority is part of the biblical order of creation. The king of kings, the glorious God of heaven, who in six days did frame his heavenly work and made all things to stand in perfect course, then to his image he did make a man, old Adam, and from his side asleep a rib was taken, of which the Lord did make the woe of man, of which uh, so termed by Adam then, 
woman for that by her came sin to us and for her sin was Adam doomed to die. It's a vision of a kind of divinely ordained misogyny straight from the Garden of Eden, which Shakespeare's Kate, Shakespeare's Catherine, doesn't give us any glimpse of. Um, uh, Shakespeare's uh, speech, comparison speech, is largely secular uh, and certainly has no touch of this idea that, of course, women are inferior, they were made out of the rib, and then they brought sin into the world. In Shakespeare's play, by contrast, the rhetoric, as we've seen, is something more approaching post-Reformation ideas of so-called companionate marriage, companionate marriage, a marriage which was not between equals, but which proposed mutual responsibilities for husband and wife. And we can see this in the large number of Protestant conduct books about <laughs> the household and marriage, which are produced uh, in the second half of the 16th century and beyond. This kind of conduct literature tries to set out that just as the wife had responsibilities to the husband, so too he had responsibilities to her. There's an attempt to establish sort of interlocking, interdependent uh, bonds of obligation between husband and wife and also between uh, children and parents and masters and servants. Catherine's speech draws on this understanding of marital reciprocity, arguing that the husband is, quote, one that cares for thee and for thy maintenance commits his body to painful labour, both by sea and land, to watch the night in storms, the day in cold, while thou liest warm at home, secure and safe, and craves no other tribute at thy hand but love fair looks and true obedience too little payment for so great a debt so payment and debt suggest these are this is a kind of transaction this is a relationship of transactions where uh, the husband's uh, dangerous work or uncomfortable work bringing home the money deserves from the wife um, uh, kindness and and uh, uh, slippers and pipe by the fire that kind of thing now, if we set aside the obvious fallacy in this speech that Petruchio is never likely to commit his body to painful labour for anything, since he has got Catherine's dowry, which was the most attractive thing about her to start with, remember, I come to wive it wealthily in Padua. Setting that aside, uh, it might not be right to set it aside, but let's do that. We can, we can see that Catherine's speech implies a different relationship from that always wretched Garden of Eden scenario which is evoked by Kate in The Taming of Aeshrew. The speech in Aeshrew also ends with a stage direction, she lays her hand under her husband's feet. So it does provide the accompanying gesture of subordination that I was pointing out isn't actually signposted in Shakespeare's version, therefore giving uh, a space for different kinds of interpretation of stage business, whether Catherine uh, does or doesn't uh, put, put her hand under Petruchio's foot. So all this might suggest that by contrast with Kate in The Taming of Aeshrew, Catherine's taming, if it has really happened, is her incorporation into a more reciprocal version of gender relations than the medieval antecedents of the taming plot might suggest. So it's something more like Protestant ideas of companionate marriage than uh, medieval misogynistic biblical ideas about how women, uh, or, or the word woman, should always be spelt W-O-E-M-A-N. Catherine's speech suggests the interconnectedness of husband and wife, 
Uh, although, obviously, we shouldn't overstate this mutuality. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign. This is not, uh, an, equ- this is not an equality of, of any kind. It's the analogy, the analogical model, by which wifely obedience to the husband is in a so- social and ethical continuum with the subject's loyalty to the monarch. Such duty as the subject owes the prince, even such a woman oweth, sorry, even such a woman oweth to her husband. So the woman owes to the husband what the subject owes to the prince. Uh, It's important, therefore, uh, that these hierarchies are maintained. This is the basis of the uh, statute which is on the Elizabethan uh, law books called Petty Treason. Petty Treason is the murder of a husband by a wife. It's not just murder, it's a kind of treason because uh, these hierarchical relationships are uh, in, in a kind of continuum with uh, treason against against the sovereign. So it, it's a really good idea, I think, to compare these two uh, two versions of the speech to see uh, what uh, a, another female character in a very similar situation might choose to say as part of her rhetoric of subordination compared with what Shakespeare's uh, Catherine does. The text of A Shrew uh, is very widely available online. Uh, archive.org has a uh, has, has a copy of a 19th century edition. There's also a modern edited version uh, in the Quarto series from Cambridge University Press. One further part of that earlier play is relevant here. Just after Kate and her new husband, Ferrando, leave the stage for bed, the framing plot with which the play began comes back into focus. Christopher Sly ends the play in The Taming of a Shrew. The stage direction reads... Then enter two, bearing off Sly in his own apparel again, and leaves him where they found him, and then goes out. So Sly returns to the stage to be woken by the tapster. The tapster, uh, uh, this is the tapster's speech, I'm just going to read it to you. Now the darksome night is overpast, and dawning day appears in crystal sky. Now must I haste abroad. But soft, who's this? What, Sly? Oh, wondrous, hath he lain here all night? I'll wake him. I think he's starved by this, but that his belly was so stuffed with ale. What now, Sly? Awake for shame. Sim, give some more winds or wine. What's all the players gone? Am I not a lord? A lord with a murrain. Come out, thou drunken still. Who's this? says Sly. Tapster. Oh, Lord Sirrah, I've had the bravest dream tonight that ever thou hadst in all of thy life. I marry, says the tapster, but you best get you home, for your wife will curse you for dreaming here tonight. Will she? says Sly. I know now how to tame a shrew. I dreamt upon it all this night till now, and thou hast waked me out of the best dream that ever I had in my life. But I'll to my wife presently, and tame her too, if she anger me. Nay, tarry, Sly, for I'll go home with thee, and hear the rest that thou hast dreamt tonight. Christopher Sly suggests here at the end of The Taming of Ashrew that the take-home message from this play is the direct information about how to tame a shrewish wife. Now, does that mean we should take this seriously as an assessment of the play? Does Christopher Sly, uh, as is sometimes suggested, stand in as the kind of on-stage audience, um, uh, a kind of proxy or, 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 or a figure for our own reactions Or does a play summary from a drunken tinker immediately mark itself as preposterous and deluded? 
uh, should we be thinking that's what Christopher Sly would think and therefore that is not what I myself think. Does bringing back the frame device at the end of A Shrew re-establish the Kate Ferrando plot as self-conscious fiction, a play within a play which could only exist in this never-never land uh, of uh, theatricality or dream? Thinking back to what I was talking about last week from Midsummer Night's Dream. And in any case, does any of this tell us anything about the shrew in which the ending of the play, uh, this ending of the play with the frame coming back, does not exist? Uh, after uh, the second scene of the uh, play proper, uh, the sly plot in uh, The Taming of the Shrew disappears entirely, uh, and it seems, a very unlikely, uh, it seems very unlikely to me that the uh, players would waste a kind of chorus uh, figure or a chorus presence on stage if it weren't actually saying anything. I think the sly bit must just disappear uh, in performance. So, so far I've been suggesting then that the ambiguity over whether Catherine is tamed at the end of The Taming of the Shrew is intrinsic to the play. It isn't, as some critics have suggested, a problem that arises because we do not now believe the kind of gender ideology that the Elizabethan audiences would have supported. It's not, I think, the problem of history. Uh, in fact, gender relations have always been problematic uh, and contested uh, in different ways, and, and literary versions of those perhaps uh, even more so. I think it's a fallacy to look back and think that uh, the past was believed more homogeneously uh, or more straightforwardly uh, than our own society does now. The, modern, uh, the early modern evidence of the taming of Aishru, that quarto version of something like this play from 1594, and of the tamer tamed the Fletcher play in the Jacobean period, as well as the play's own structure and its ambiguities, mean that this is a question present in the text itself. It's not something which we bring from some modern perspective, which destabilises a text which was perfectly straightforward. For the last section of the lecture, then, I want to turn to some late 20th century performance to suggest how some of these ambiguities have informed and shaped the play's direction on the contemporary stage. And here I'm using uh, material from uh, female actors uh, in the, uh, a book edited by Carol Rutter called Clamorous Voices, Shakespeare's Women Today. It's a great account of uh, different, uh, very articulate actors talking about playing uh, Catherine, which is what we're going to use in the lecture today, but also uh, Measure for Measures, Isabella, for instance, uh, Lady Macbeth. Uh, Rosalind, uh, other, other characters. They're really interesting um, understandings of the characters and of the play, the productions in which they were performed. So the chapter on the Taming of the Shrew brings together Sinead Cusack, who played Catherine for the RSE in 1982 under the direction of Michael Bogdanov, and Fiona Shaw, who was directed by Jonathan Miller uh, in another RSE production in 1987. So this is what these two actors, uh, talk, how they talk about uh, the question of whether Catherine is tamed or was tamed in their productions. Fiona Shaw argued that Catherine's last speech is uh, a kind of step forward into a new life. This man who seemed to be her tormentor has given her or has allowed her to take the step that will save the rest of her life. That's why it's wrong if the play is about dominance and a broken spirit. It's about someone on the brink who found a, a way of saying yes without being compromised. So the man who seemed to be her tormentor has given her or allowed her to take the step that will save the rest of her life. Shaw's was a, um, a, kind, a kind of interpretation of Catherine which suggested that 
um, Catherine's shrewishness was the sign of being out of control, uh, out of the kind of social norms, unable to enjoy uh, or, or pr pr proceed with personal relationships on any level. So she brings out that what Catherine, um, uh, the evidence of Catherine's shrewish behaviour is actually just bad behaviour. It's not really uh, anything that you would particularly want to support her uh, in doing. Uh, Catherine is never uh, trying to challenge gender norms in the way that, say, Portia does when she dresses uh, as an extremely efficient lawyer uh, in Merchant of Venice, for example. Uh, she, you know, she's not saying, uh, I don't want to be married uh, because I'm going to uh, be a doctor or I'm going to do something else. Is she? She's just saying, uh, I hate my sister, I'm going to bang a loot over her head, uh, I'm going to you know, beat her. These are, these are low-level, antisocial pieces of behaviour, Fiona Shaw felt. This is not a Kate whose independence or whose feistiness should be endorsed by the play because it's not worthwhile, it's not doing anything uh, productive, it's antisocial, it's a sign of, uh, of, of kind of pain or, or misalliance, mis, uh, mis kind of uh, misfitting into the society. At the end of the play, Shaw says, Kate wins. She can say anything now, and she's still Kate. She's saying, I acknowledge the system. I don't think we can change this. Uh, but she is able uh, to operate within it. So Shaw argues that the, the speech at the end uh, of the production that she was in was not really an articulation uh, of the gender status quo, but a kind of challenge uh, to it. Um, and suggesting that a Kate who is within the system uh, in some ways is more able to operate according to its rules or to kind of push its rules a bit uh, and to be herself, to be a person, uh, to, be, to, be, to be a comic person. So uh, I think that's a production which gives the play uh, a comic ending. That's not to say a funny ending, but the ending that comedy is looking for, which is the sense that individuality uh, is, is a rather dangerous quality in comedies. What people need is the, the ability to uh, meld their individuality to someone else. That's how comedies work. They're, that's, they're bringing people together uh, and suggesting that a kind of radical autonomy is a dangerous antisocial thing to have. The people who are on their own in comedies uh, are dangerous anti-comic figures. People like Don John, who I was talking about uh, when we were thinking about Much Do About Nothing. Let's look at, then at uh, Sinead Cusack's uh, interpretation of Kate's final speech, which is um, less, less, uh, uh, less guarded uh, than uh, Shaw's is, I think. Uh, she sees the speech as a, a positive coming together, the intellectual consummation of a marriage of equals, which is just about to have its physical consummation after the end of the play. This is Cusack. At the end of the play, I was determined that Kate and Petruchio were rebels and would remain rebels forever. Her speech was not predictable. This so-called submission speech isn't a submission speech at all. It's a speech about how her spirit has been allowed to soar free. She is not attached to him. He hasn't laid down the rules for her. She has made her own rules, and what he's managed to do is to allow her to have her own vision. It happens that her vision coincides with his. There's a privately shared joke in the speech and irony and some blackness. They're going to go on to have a very interesting marriage. Petruchio was on his knees. I was standing. So she goes on to talk about how the sort of stage business 
uh, goes went towards shaping uh, the interpretation of this scene. So the question of whether Catherine is tamed becomes, uh, in these two accounts, a point of contention the playtext raises but cannot answer, while performance tries to find contingent answers. No matter how hard we look at the text of the shrew, we won't be able to stabilise its meaning, but we can look to performance to give us some of the possibilities. What's interesting about these possibilities in performance is that it's extremely rare uh, to see uh, a, a production of the play which argues that Catherine is tamed. So that's, to, for us to see that now, that's obviously a kind of uh, too uncomfortable, uh, uh, it, it's not a thing that we, we particularly uh, want to see. So let's finish with a slightly wider question then. What's at stake for us in this question of whether Catherine is tamed? Why does this question matter? The examples from modern performance, both of these two stage productions with Sinead Cusack and with Fiona Shaw, and the films by Zeffirelli and for the BBC that I cited earlier, all of these productions want a Catherine who, if she is tamed, is... Uh, better for it, okay, so has been uh, brought into a more contented social role, has kept enough of her fieriness to be interesting, has met her match in Petruchio and is going to have a more interesting marriage than Bianca is uh, with whoever it is she ended up uh, marrying. None of these versions from the later 20th century wants the play to endorse Catherine's taming as uh, the comic um, triumph of Petruchio or of male authority. I think this tells us something about what we want or need Shakespeare to mean. It probably wouldn't really matter whether Fletcher or Middleton or Johnson wrote a play about gender relations in which male superiority seemed uh, to be utterly championed, because it would be easy for us to identify that as a kind of antique attitude, uh, the equivalent of doublet and hose, a kind of museum piece, which is the way we tend to think about other writers from the past. It wouldn't really matter to us uh, if we were to say, you know, Fletcher was sexist, you know, hold, hold the front page. Shakespeare's role in modern culture, of course, makes that stance impossible. We don't value Shakespeare primarily because of the insight he gives us into 16th century culture. Rather, we burden his works with the requirement that they can somehow anticipate our later concerns and ways of thinking. Put more simply, a misogynistic Shakespeare would be a very uncomfortable man of the millennium or a compulsory author here uh, or, or in school, the school system, or a beneficiary of taxpayer subsidy, as at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Criticism has worked extremely hard to make this play acceptable and it's worth assessing the lengths to which scholars and directors have gone to reassure us that Catherine is not, after all, tamed. So I'm arguing that the play itself is ambiguous, uh, but out of that ambiguity we have created something like uh, a performance consensus which suggests, uh, at least for the modern period, uh, that Catherine uh, is able to retain some kind of independence, some kind of uh, autonomy, even as she speaks uh, the speech that we've been discussing. Now, some of these ideas about how later history shapes our expectations and makes certain kinds of readings possible or impossible will recur next week, which is my last lecture in this series, 
the play I'm going to be talking about is The Merchant of Venice. And I think the question I'm going to talk about there is, why does Bassanio pick the lead casket? Why does Bassanio pick the lead casket? I hope I'll see you on Merchant of Venice next week. Thank you. Thank you.